The podcast you are about to hear tells the story of a Katsi man named Slumuk. Members of the Katsi First Nation have been instrumental in us telling the story properly. We acknowledge that the story of Slumuk originates from the ancestral lands of the Katsi people. What you're about to hear, you may find graphic and violent in nature. Listener discretion is advised. One day in the late 1800s, a man walked into the back door of a shop in New Westminster, BC, carrying a 10-pound cotton sugar sack. As he emptied the sack, glittering gold nuggets tumbled out onto the table. The man swore the shopkeeper to secrecy. If anyone found out about this man's treasure, they would be after him to show him where he got it. The shopkeeper looked at the youthful-looking indigenous man and paid him $27 for his sack worth of gold. Soon after, the shopkeeper closed up shop and returned to Europe, never to be heard from again. Meanwhile, the indigenous man named Slumok was hanged years later for the murder of Louis B. And soon after his death, a rumor started that Slumok had found gold and that he had killed to protect it. And not only that, but he had cursed the gold from the gallows when he said, Nika Memlus, mein Memlus. When I die, the mine dies. I'm Crew Williams, and this is Dead Man's Curse. Episode 4, All That Glitters. Slumuk's story begins in the late 1800s, about 30 minutes from what is now downtown Vancouver. His story and mine are intertwined, as I became part of the adventure television docuseries called Dead Man's Curse. I'm your guide, along with a mountaineer, a truth seeker, and a way shower that make up the rest of the team as we investigate Slumuk's life, the curse, and walk in his footsteps. And if we're lucky, find a little of that infamous gold. So if you're joining us for the first time, you may want to go back to the beginning. Joining me will be a host of experts and members of the Katsi and Stolo First Nations to sort fact from fiction and give Slumuk a voice from the other side of the veil. In our search, we'll be using sources including newspaper articles and court records from the 1800s, which use archaic words to describe indigenous people that can be offensive to some listeners. We are only using them as a way to describe how events were reported at that time. The legend of Slumuk and his gold goes by many names. The legend of the lost mine of Pitt Lake, the legend of the Lost Creek Mine, the legend of Slumuk's gold. The story always starts with a variation on a young brash man from Pitt Lake, bragging about his wealth, spending it freely in New Westminster on women and booze. He would always disappear for a while into a creek rich with gold nuggets, a source that would be worth billions today. And yet, you'll notice, from everything we've shared about Slumuk's story, from the killing of Louis B. at the Lillooet Slough on September 8, 1890, to his execution on the gallows in New Westminster on January 16, 1891, not a single newspaper article mentioned anything about gold. Not one word. As a prospector myself, I've been drawn to those mountains around Pitt Lake ever since I was a kid and I get out there as often as I can. Adam Palmer, the mountaineer and historian on the Dead Man's Curse team, 
says there's something to prospecting that goes beyond the obvious financial gain. Like me, Adam grew up outside Vancouver, not too far from Pitt Lake, and he spent more than 20 years specifically looking for Slumux Lost Gold Mine. If you've been watching the show, you know, he knows a few things about the blank. Well, the legend first showed up in my life when I started reading books about this lost gold mine. I started climbing mountains and uh, doing a lot of rock climbing. I went on a couple trips very early on in life, and I had a book that talked about a lost gold mine in the Pitt River, Upper Pitt. And I was like, well, I want to go climb. You know, I was thinking about climbing mountains up in that area. I'm like, why not climb a mountain with the chance of finding a gold mine? And it was just a, it was just a history the history of the area. I was like, wow, man, if you can climb mountains and find, you know, there's a bunch of people that went missing. Maybe we can climb mountains and find bodies too. You know, like when you're, you know, 14, 15, 16 years old, that sounds cool. You never know what you're gonna find. So, um, little did I know there was, you know, a lot. It was a lot more than just a legend. There, I started turning up evidence and finding. You know, the more I read about it, the more I realized, oh, this is real stuff. If you've seen the TV series Dead Man's Curse, you'll know that thousands of people have gone looking for that gold in the mountains of Pitt Lake, including us. You start to see these old remnants of these, you know, old timers, these old prospectors that were climbing the same mountains as you are, but they had a different purpose. You know, they're putting their blood, sweat, and tears into trying to get gold. And you find some of the remnants, you find their tools, you find their old mines, you know, and when you're way up in the mountain, you see evidence of people being there. You're like, whoa, what else can I find? You know, like, what did they leave behind? You know, what was their story? So you, you find a little bit of evidence and then you research it. You find a little bit more evidence and then you research it more. And you just go down this loop of history that always brings you back to this lost gold mine. It becomes an obsession. <laughs> yeah, it does. There's nothing more addictive than panning out some pay dirt and seeing those pretty little Easter eggs pop up out the black sand. I'm not going to say it's a sickness, <laughs> but it's definitely a fever. You're just so obsessed with what's in front of you and processing it and moving on and figuring it out. Time just flies by. When you get on that gold, you're on it. And that's the only thing you're thinking about. I think some people that find themselves who get in trouble out there is they're not happy unless they find an answer. And that's, that's what sets them apart from kind of my searches. A lot of the times people don't know where they're going or they, you know, they're taking my lead. And it looks like I'm just wandering aimlessly through the forest or through the mountains, but that's exploring. That's what's fascinating about it is the characters, the history, the mountains, the land itself. That's what's that's to me the true true purpose of being there and at any given time you know you're looking for a lost gold mine but you know i find myself you know 6500 feet up a mountain going oh you know you're getting frustrated oh we're, there's supposed to be a mine there's supposed to be an old claim here i can't find it where is it but then you know you got to stop and think you know you can't have that mindset going in this 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 legend is going to take you down and it's going to punch you in the face you know this this is a this is a legend and history that it doesn't take any any prisoners. It's gonna it's gonna take you down if you don't just let it go with the flow. You have to let it go, you know, you have to flow with this legend. On our search for Slumox Gold, we walked the same path and slept under the same stars as many others who have gone before us and have found direct ties to the past. It's hard work. And then all of a sudden you find something like we found an old trapper's trail from, you know, 1921, this guy's old trap line. Like, and that was totally by 
mistake to me, but you know, other people on my team, like Don and Taylor, they said, no, Adam, that wasn't a mistake, man. That just, these things come to you. It's almost like we're being shown the way to unravel this mystery. There's a reason why I've found those things along the way. And I don't know what that, you know, what that reason is, but to me, it's a, it's a good, it's a good thing because we're finding that trap line and those, and that, you know, we found a pickaxe under a rock and I had no idea it was in the area, but it was just something leads you along that way. You know, it's like Flight of the Navigator. You know, if you ever seen that movie, that was a, one of my favorite movies as a kid was, you know, he gets inside the spaceship and he thinks he's going to be in charge, but he's not, right? Something more bigger and powerful is in charge. And But we're still the explorer, right? We're still the pilot. So, and I, and I want to get what I want, but I'm going to take my time and it comes down to patience. So that's kind of how I go about this whole legend, really. We're only a few of the thousands who have gone looking for this lost gold mine. Many have been injured, many have died, some never returned. All of this is only added to the mystery of the legend, and of course the curse. But is there a mine for us to find? And how was Slumut connected to it? You'll remember that gold was first discovered along the Fraser River in 1858. And with that came the establishment of British Columbia in an attempt to ensure the region's treasures and resources stayed in British hands. Canada didn't exist yet. That didn't happen until July 1st, 1867. The press at the time of Slumok's trial in 1890 estimated him to be about 70 or 80 years old. This was based on opinion because there is no printed record in the colonial archive of Slumuk's birth or actual age. If Slumuk indeed had been 70 at the time of his execution, he would have been born in 1820 or even earlier. There's no way to know for sure. Regardless, he would have been in his 30s at the time of the Fraser Gold Rush in 1858. Was Slumuk the brass young man from Pitt Lake? Perhaps. By the summer of 1858, the gold-fever-driven bloodlust came to a boiling point in what is now known as the Fraser Canyon War. That's when the American prospectors, mostly white, predominantly coming from the depleted goldfields of California, flooded into the traditional territories of the Inklopamuk Nation to mine for gold. From June through August of that year, as the Inklopamuk tried to defend their territories along the Fraser River, American miners had formed military-style companies and violently attacked the Inklopamuk communities, raping indigenous women and killing indigenous men who stood in the way of their treasure. Governor James Douglas attempted to establish some semblance of governmental authority over the region in the name of Britain, from the seat of power located in Victoria on faraway Vancouver Island. He officially declared the district the Crown Colony of British Columbia on August 2nd, Meanwhile, the chaos and lawlessness along the Fraser River, deep in the heart of the province, was nearly impossible to control from Victoria. According to our research into materials compiled by Historica Canada, Inklopamuk elder Mary Williams said, the war only ended when her people agreed to give up territory to the miners. Quote, Chief Spitlam spoke up asking, what are you going to do? The whites said that all old people were going to be killed off and only the young women were going to be kept. Stop right there, 
commanded Chief Spitlam. End that talk right there. I'm going to give you some land. Chief Spitlam stood up and stretched out his arms to the horizon and pointed in the direction of sundown and sunrise and said, quote, This side will be yours and this side will be my people's. You are not to kill anyone. The white people agreed. They put down all their guns and shook hands with the Indian people. End quote. A few days later, Governor Douglas arrived by boat up the Fraser River, accompanied by 35 armed men to assert law and order in the name of Her Majesty's government. But by then, the war had pretty much ended. If he was in the region, Slumuk's world would have been forever transformed. Gold seekers created a new way of living and a new economy that revolved around something the original people of that area considered to be of very little value. Gold. Taylor Starr told us that to the Katsi and other First Nations in the region, gold was heavy and hard and not malleable like copper. There was no real use for it in indigenous society. It was too often the outsiders who prized it above all, even human life. But this makes you wonder, did Slumok know about the Fraser Canyon War? Or even the discovery of gold on the Fraser River when it first happened? When did he find out about the value of gold to outsiders? Those settlers with claims on the traditional territories of his people. When did Slumok become, as Don Froze described him in the last episode, one of the early entrepreneurs of the Katsi people? Today, we'll try to answer these questions as we hope to find out the motive behind Louis B's murder and find other clues in hopes of unraveling this 150-year-old mystery. Twenty-one years before the murder, on November 10, 1869, the Mainland Guardian published a small item with the exciting headline, Discovery of Diggings at Pitt River. Quote, an Indian brought in a good prospect of gold a few days ago, which he states he found in a little stream on the north side of Pitt Lake. He has volunteered to lead a party to the place, and arrangements are being made for their immediate departure. The event has created considerable excitement in the city. End quote. Was this unnamed indigenous man Slumuk? It's not surprising that indigenous people helped European settlers. They often traded critical goods like food and canoes and acted as guides and translators. That's part of the reason why Canada even exists today. But the main question is, why would this indigenous man volunteer to take the outsiders, particularly white prospectors, to the gold? Especially after all the bloodshed during the Fraser Canyon War less than a decade earlier. Did he earn more money showing prospectors where to find gold than he would have selling it himself? We may never know for sure, but we can't tell this story without including information about what the colonial government was doing to the people who had lived there before the Europeans arrived. The entire northern half of North America was under control of the British Empire and ruled in the name of Queen Victoria. It imposed rules and regulations across the land and subjugated the traditional governments of indigenous people. In 1876, the government established the Indian Act. To get a better understanding of how the Indian Act and other colonial policies changed Slumuk's world, 
I'd like to introduce you to Gail Starr, our indigenous cultural expert, member of Seabird Island Band, with close relatives in the Katsi First Nation. She's also Taylor Starr's mom and wife of our resident way shower, Don Froze. Gail and Don say the Indian Act put restrictions on First Nations people in terms of what they could and couldn't do. So, you know, we had um, the fur industry, we had gold, uh, we had land interest from other countries. So the um, federal government felt that they needed to um, do something with the First Nations population that was already in Canada. So they um, got this Indian Act together and imposed it on the First Nations people who lived in Canada. In placing the Indian Act, that meant that uh, First Nations people and the lands that they lived on, the lands that were set aside for First Nations people, were now under the control of the um, Indian Act and under the federal government. So that changed a lot for us. Uh, you know, we were um, already getting placed in uh, lands that was picked for us. So reserve lands, and um, those reserve lands were considered federal property. We didn't have rights like to vote. We couldn't vote into any provincial or federal elections. We weren't even considered Canadians. We were considered wards of the government, wards of the federal government, and um, they would uh, look after us. They did things like they tried to turn us into farmers. So they gave... Um, cattle to some of our people so that they could raise their own cattle. They gave us um, fruit trees and um, lots of apple trees, cherry trees, the whole thing, so that we could turn into farmers and that we could um, look after ourselves in our communities and feed our families in that way. We couldn't do things like um, go into liquor establishments. To have alcohol was illegal for our people. There's so many, so many things that we couldn't like even write, go into public areas. We had to get permission to leave our First Nations community. So we would um, have these permission slips that would be granted to us when we could leave our communities because they were constantly keeping track of uh, where we were going. We were in the way. So that's, that's, that's why treaties were created as well, but, but under the Indian Act. That's the big. That's the big picture. Is to get people out of the way. We needed. Um, we couldn't develop our lands that um, we were um, settled settled on. That, that that the government gave us. We couldn't um, do anything with our land without permission from the government. So if we wanted to build a structure, we had to get permission from the federal government to build a structure. Um, to build um, that would include community buildings or personal housing. Yeah, so the government also imposed fishing rules on our communities. So the first thing, you know, with the Indian Act was getting the people away from the river. People, you know, our fishing camps, our, our, our pit houses, uh, winter dwellings, just access. Move people away from the river. Of course, with the gold rush, it just made it, it just amped it up and made it even way worse. But... The, the government, um, their plan was to form a ministry to control 
First Nations fishing on the river so that it would um, provide more opportunity for uh, settler commercial fisheries to come in and harvest fish. I don't even think that Indigenous people back then could even get a commercial fisher license. No. Yeah, they weren't allowed. So how, you know, how we work it traditionally when we hunt and fish is um, we do bartering and trading with other nations. So, and that was very common practice. Um, But what happened is the federal government put parameters around uh, where we could hunt, when we could hunt, and... So we had these lines drawn, physical lines drawn on a map saying, you know, in the Stolo territory, you only have, you can only hunt from here to here. And that was it. There was nothing. And we weren't allowed to um, bring any of our, uh, anything that we got in that parameter and trade it with another nation, then it would be illegal to do that. And to keep track of everything, the government used agents and religion. The Indian agents would visit each First Nations communities and do a count to ensure that the people who were supposed to be there were there and keep track of any births or any deaths in the communities. But unfortunately, those stats weren't accurately kept. So um, they may have been jotted down, but they were never registered in a formal way with the federal government. The only People who actually kept formal records of First Nations peoples were, um, in in our case here, the Catholic Church. So when there was um, a birth, a death, a marriage, um, the Catholic Church was involved and they had those documents. So that's how that kind of worked. This is not the only reason a catechist spent so much time with Slumuk during his final days. And we'll go into greater detail in a future episode because there's major clues to be mined in that connection. In the meantime, as Queen Victoria's government began to impose the Indian Act, Slumak became an entrepreneur. You know, Slumak, we consider him a very entrepreneurial person. He probably didn't give two rips about the Indian Act. He just did his own thing. And, and I think, you know, when he came down with his gold, I think there was more curiosity from the companies that he was maybe approaching and um, sold his gold to. I think they were more interested in um, not so much about where's your license, uh, but they wanted to know where he got the gold from. And he was very savvy that way. And he used those companies to his advantage and um, by getting the cash from the gold, but giving them very little information as to where he got the gold from. So whether there's any documentation of that, I doubt it. Any documentation is probably long gone by now from the companies who took the information from Slumac. But, um, you know, he worked alone. He was very comfortable in the areas that he was getting his gold from because that's his traditional territory and that's his backyard. I think Gail's got to she bang on about Slumak being an entrepreneur. His his whole his whole basis of, of living though was based on getting what he needed to, to get by on. And it just so happened that along his you know, his path he found this motherload of gold. And he he was obviously a very private person. He he protected his his style of life. And um, 
you know, being faced with the, um, the settlers, you know, he probably got, he's probably pretty anxious, you know, and, and doubled up on making sure nobody would see where he, where he was going for anything. We still do that today. Like we don't talk about where we caught the fish. We don't talk about where we got the moose. We don't even talk about where we pick berries. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's true. We have, everyone's got their secret berry patch. That's <laughs> true. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because that's that's how you live. That's Yeah. That was the store, right? But having said that, we we shared everything. So, mm -hmm. and, or like Gail said traded. But the Indian Act that's the one thing the Indian Act couldn't cover, was our way of life, yeah. really. As Gail and Don mentioned, that way of life is still impacted by the law that was first imposed 147 years ago. Yeah, so the Indian Act is still well and alive in, in Canada. Um, it has gone through many amendments over the years, but very subtle amendments. Um, some of those amendments are uh, we're able to vote now. Uh, we're actually considered Canadian citizens now. Uh, we can go into liquor establishments. We can leave the reserves without getting permission um, or uh, being granted permission. Um, some of the things that are still in play are if we wanted to build structures in our uh, communities, First Nations communities, we still need the, um, the approval of the federal government to build those buildings, structures, be it business uh, community or uh, homes for our, our people. We still, um, oh, there's so many things that we, we could, because we live it every day, we don't even, we don't really think well, about there, it. These are the dates when you can fish and when you can't fish. Yeah, and these and, are the places where you can fish. And, and this is the size of net that you're going to use. You're not going to use what, what you normally would use. You're going to use this. And so we, today we still have that. We still have those same rules in place. And today, we still have people that go and fish when they need fish and get in trouble. <laughs> and and people, the young people are saying, "Screw you! We're going to go out here and <laughs> do what we got to do to feed our our families and our young ones and our grandparents and our elders." But it's getting there's there's some, there's been some little little breakthroughs. Yeah, we're getting there like, slowly. Like co-managing. Yeah, but. It's, it's a big picture, but the government, with, with the Indian Act, they basically threw a blanket over everything, and, and um, it was like, like a big, like a purse net, mm -hmm. and, and they just pulled it tight and, and then said, well, well, hopefully you'll all die off. <laughs> <laughs> We're still here. Yeah. The perseverance and survival against a system so set on control helped shape Slumuk's entrepreneurial spirit, helping people find gold, finding and selling gold himself, building a life. And if he clearly did this thing under the radar, why would he risk it all to shoot Louis B? The legend says Slumuk was a young, brash, pretty much cold-blooded. But from our accounts, there's a different side to him. Maybe the myth is completely different from the real story. Still, did Louis B. know something that could have threatened everything Slumuk had created for himself? Did Slumuk kill Louis B. to protect his secret gold mine? I, the above named Slumuk, may oath and say 
that the Louis B. this deceased was habitually quarreling with me and that he frequently harassed me with improper language and threatened me more than once with violence and I was in constant fear of him. Or was it something else altogether? He's been convicted in the press way before he gets uh, to trial. The cards were stacked against Slumuk. They, they were stacked against him before he even pulled the trigger. Remember, I told you the official record might not be all there is to the story. That's next time on Dead Man's Curse. Thank you for joining me, and special thanks to Gail Starr, Adam Palmer, and Don Froze for their work on this episode. Dead Man's Curse, Slumox Gold is written by Ernest White II and Dila Velasquez. Our producers are Jessica Young and Dila Velasquez. Editing and sound design by Rob Johnston and Rosalyn Kofor. Our associate producers are Valerie Hold Mershon and Gail Starr. Our indigenous cultural and heritage consultant is Gail Starr. Our executive producers are Chris Duncombe, Ernest White II, Michael Francis, Tim Hardy, and David Way. Dead Man's Curse is a curious cast and great Pacific media production. 